37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal, episode number 93. And on this special episode, it may be kind of a shorter episode. It's kind of impromptu. We were going to be jumping back into the um, Thieves in the Night series, but it is with heavy hearts that we have to share the news. Um, A lot of you probably heard, but if you didn't know already, Lorraine Warren has passed away at the ripe old age of 92. I almost said 1992. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, At 92. Um, so if you didn't know who she is, you'd probably recognize her name if we bring up such movies as The uh, the Conjuring mm-hmm. and um, Annabelle yeah. and all those movies. But uh, yeah, she was the uh, she was one half of the famed Warren ghost hunters. Um, Ed and Lorraine Warren, of course, are their names. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, last Thursday she passed away um, at her home peacefully, they say. Mm-hmm. And so we thought we'd uh, get together and have a little chat about uh, Ed and Lorraine, kind of put a little cap at the end of that uh, that legacy there, and you know share a couple things we know about them and a couple things we read about them with you guys. So I didn't uh, I didn't read the whole article, but uh, Mysterious Universe posted something that uh, Lorraine Warren will be buried in a haunted cemetery. Yeah, if you read the notes. <laughs> you see that I had that included. <laughs> oh, did you? Shit! <laughs> Look, Look at, at that you. spoiler alert. Damn. Yep. That's what we get for deciding at like 2 p.m. we're going to do an episode about the <laughs> Discombobulated. Yeah, well, you know, what can you do? Yeah. So um, I found on a lot of sources they said that their their team or their group were uh, was called the Seekers of the Supernatural. I don't know if there's any truth to that or not. But yeah, um, I don't know when exactly I knew about the the Warrens. Uh, probably pretty early on, as I was, you know, stowed away in the corner of the library in grade school reading this weird stuff. Did you grow up reading about them or know about them early on? No, uh, I didn't know about the Warrens until uh, I watched a, a a show about that had uh, John Zaffis Zaffis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Zaffis. Yeah. Yeah, and he was talking about them, and so then I did research, and I was like, oh. Well, holy shit. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah they uh, they had a lot to do with a lot of the Amityville stuff yeah. way back when, so. Oh, yeah. Well, um, as oddly enough, as this episode comes out, they are laying her to rest right now as you guys listen to this episode. Her funeral will be on Wednesday, April 24th at 10 a.m. at the St. Stephen's Church I don't know exactly where the article cut off for it said exactly where. Probably so people wouldn't flood to it. But any hoozle, as we're sitting here talking about her, she is being laid to rest, unfortunately. But yeah, as you mentioned earlier, her burial site is going to be at a haunted cemetery. And as uh, Mysterious Universe had put it, world-renowned paranormal investigator Lorraine Warren passed away April 18th, 2019, will be laid to rest in a haunted cemetery. 
On April 24th, she'll be put to her final resting place in the Stephanie Village Cemetery in Monroe, Connecticut. Oh, there we go. If I would have reread my notes, I too <laughs> would have had the missing links. <laughs> uh, she'll be laid to rest next to her husband, Ed Warren, who passed away back in 2006. And so the little tidbit here about this cemetery is it actually uh, dates back to the 1700s and has a pretty serious reputation for being haunted. Tons of, you know, full body apparitions, ectoplasmic blobs and everything else uh, has been seen there. And it said something to the tune of 1400 people have been laid to rest there. So you probably have a little bit of uh, haunting going on mm -hmm. there. And one of the most common sightings people see is the lady in white or the white lady. The biggest story here for the white lady is that in 1993, an off-duty firefighter was driving home when he hit the woman in his car and left a huge dent in his vehicle. And of course, like every other urban legend, when he gets out, his front of his car is dented in, but there's no woman or no body to be found. The white lady is believed to be in her 20s, uh, the ghost of a woman who passed away during giving birth to a child. And those who see her say she's wearing a white nightgown, bonnet, and has long dark hair. And then the other noteworthy ghost here is Nathaniel Knapp, who was an American Revolutionary War private and the first person to be buried at the cemetery. Supposedly, if you walk into the cemetery and you say, Nathan, Nathan, come out to play, he will pull your hair or touch your shoulder. And then uh, some other action. Or touch your naughty bits. <laughs> uh, some other action here is that uh, supposedly Ed Warren himself is said to make his presence known. If you kneel in front of his gravestone and say a prayer and touch the cross, uh, supposedly you'll get the overwhelming sensation of uh, warmth covering your body. And that's said to be Ed making his uh, presence known and to give you his blessing for coming by. But yeah, so since Ed and Lorraine were both dedicated to the living the paranormal investigator life, it's only fitting that they lay her to rest along with Ed in this haunted cemetery. So the Warrens, uh, a little bit of tidbit, a little tidbit about the Warrens. Ed was born in September 7th, 1926. Uh, he passed away August 23rd, 2006. And he was a World War II United States Navy veteran a former police officer, and a self-taught, self-professed demonologist, an author, and a lecturer. And I always kind of pissed and moaned a bit because I couldn't find anybody famous that I shared a birthday with. Well, today, I finally found her because Lorraine Warren was born on January 31st of 1927. No shit. Yeah, so I do share a birthday with somebody pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. And she uh, she has always got a lot of flack because she professes to be a clairvoyant and a light trance medium uh, who works closely with her husband. So you'll see a lot of these movies, The Conjuring and that kind of stuff, where she kind of goes into these trances during the seances and whatnot to contact the spirits of, you know, the ghosts and the loved ones. And she got a lot of flack for that in the real world because a lot of people thought that was just kind of, you know, hooey and mumbo jumbo, but... Yeah, she claims to have that power, and um, it's interesting because they were actually employed by a lot of police, a lot of detectives, and a lot of other um, crime investigations because they were able to help solve a lot of uh, mysteries for police. 
So maybe uh, maybe there was some truth to her clairvoyance after all. But their ghost hunting business started in 1952 when the Warrens founded founded when the Warrens founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, the oldest ghost hunting group in the New England area. They've written tons of books about the paranormal and about their private investigations and other uh, interests into various reports of paranormal activity. They've claimed to investigate over 10,000 cases during their career, and the Warrens were among the very first to actually investigate the controversial Amityville haunting. And according to the Warrens, the New England Society for Psychic Research uses very uses a variety of individuals, including medical doctors, researchers, police officers, nurses, college students, and members of the clergy in all of their investigations. And of course, we know that there are dozens and dozens of things, documentaries, TV shows, and movies inspired by them, including the aforementioned Amityville Horror series. There's like five movies. I think they're um, The Conjuring that has a couple more coming out. And tons of other stuff. So, I mean, their name is pretty much synonymous with, uh, you know, the unusual and the strange. So, um, did you have anything to talk about for Amityville? Yeah, actually. So, I got a, a couple different cases. Um, one of them I, I didn't know about. The Trial of Arne Cheyenne Johnson. Have you ever heard of that? No. Is that, I mean, is that to do with Amityville? No. Or are you... <laughs> But I'll, I'll, I'll fucking I'll get around to Amityville, okay? Oh, so yeah, you yeah, you're just uh, waiting for your cue. Yeah, I was waiting for my cue there, boo. <laughs> okay, so um, are you just gonna jump into the stories then? Yeah, I mean, if you want me. To. Okay, cool. So we'll just fast forward a little bit. Um, you did some <laughs> some research and found some kind of obscure cases. Yeah. about them. So jump into it. Um. So. They were brought in, Ed and Lorraine Warren were called to testify on behalf of Arne, Arne, A-R-N-E. How would you say that? Uh, how do you spell it? A- A-R-N-A? A-R-N-E. Arne? Arne. I'd say Arne. Yeah, so Arne Cheyenne Johnson. The first known case in the U.S. to use the uh, phrase, the devil made me do it for the defense. Um, oh, really? Yeah, so February 16th, 1981, 19-year-old Johnson engaged to Debbie Glatzel, um, was uh, out for, you know, out on like a dinner date, and uh, then they came home, and basically he stabbed the landlord, Alan Bono, <laughs> multiple times using a pocket knife, and... Um, Johnson pled guilty by possession. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, in the summer, let's just say the summer of like 1980, some other shit happened with the brother-in-law, David. Um, he described a man with big black eyes and a thin face with animal features, jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hooves. Um, oh, wow. the, the demon's description mirrors the creature from the horror hit Insidious. And apparently scared David so much that Debbie turned to Arn for help. Johnson couldn't find a reasonable explanation for uh, David's bruises or scratches, so the family pivoted to a priest. Supposedly, the only this only angered the entity more, causing it to make David hiss, speak in multiple voices, and quote "Paradise Lost." And 
basically all that weird paranormal shit didn't hold up in court. <laughs> right. And uh, Johnson was found guilty of first degree manslaughter and served five years. Oh, wow. Does it give you a date when that happened? Each summer, let's see, it did February 16th, 1981. So what's interesting about that case is I, I would argue that that's not the first case of the devil made me do it. Because you had David Berkowitz and the son of Sam happen back in the 70s, oh, the mid to late yeah, 70s. yeah, you're right. Yeah, in- and Berkowitz always claimed that that he was being talked to by a demon or the devil, I forget which of the two, uh, through his neighbor's dog. Yeah. And that he was being provoked and taught by the dog uh, what to do and how to kill people. So, um, But you are correct in one thing that I read as well. Um, they were involved in a lot of demonic cases that had to do with like legal battles yeah, because yeah. that's one common thread. There is a lot of people started claiming that they were being um, provoked by spirits and demons and whatnot right around the seventies and eighties. So yeah, and cool. Okay, go and on. And then of course you know the the famous Annabelle doll, right? Um, mm-hmm. I slept through most of that movie, and uh, <laughs> so. I don't. It's not really scary, but apparently the real life tale was a lot, you know, a lot more boring than the movie was. So Hollywood uh-huh. really had to spice it up. Um, but uh, the one thing that, that I read was that uh, so this this guy whose daughter was a nurse, a nurse, she was going to nursing school, and she liked to collect like antique dolls. So he like found her this like old antique doll gave it to her as a present and uh, her and her roommate uh, and then uh, the girl's uh, fiance were all living in a house together. And apparently Mm -hmm. the guy would wake up in the middle of the night, like frozen um, in bed. So he would have like night terrors or sleep paralysis. And then when he Mm -hmm. would open his eyes, he would find the doll like climbing up on the bed and like climbing up, trying to mount his body and then trying to strangle him. So, Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if they put that in the movie or not. Cause like I said, I, I fell asleep. Um, yeah, I, I had no desire to see that movie. I've heard from some people it's actually pretty decent, but yeah. Um, I just got bummed out because they had to dress up that doll. Cause that doll was what a raggedy and yeah, it was just a raggedy and doll. So they made it like one of those creepy porcelain dolls to kind of, you know, spruce it up a little bit. Yeah. And then, uh, the, uh, the parent family, um, in Rhode Island, uh, they bought a house that was built in 1736 and the home was once inhabited by Bethesda Thayer and her four children three of whom died young and basically she was a devil worshiper a whole bunch of weird shit happened um so uh the warrens were brought out to help in 1974 but their presence aggravated and the conditions um, of the house got worse uh so much that the family eventually was asked to leave uh that was a uh, base stuff or the movie the conjuring did you watch that one mm-hmm. that one was actually pretty good Man, that movie would have been good if the trailer didn't have every single spooky <laughs> jump scare in the trailer. Because I yeah. sat there in the theater watching that shit, and like, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer about that series because I know a lot of people hold the Conjuring movies, you know, uh, close to their heart. But every scary part happened in the trailer, so to me, it was just a big bust. But yeah. uh, and I guess one thing they didn't touch on in the movies that supposedly happened in real life is that uh, so the ghosts 
of Bethesda was kind of jealous and uh, she didn't like the fact that there was a married couple in there. So she used to pinch slap and often bite Carolyn, the wife, and often Mm -hmm. touched Roger, the husband, inappropriately on several occasions. So he had like Uh that Ghostbuster scene, you know, in the middle of the night where the pants (laughs) runs up and he's like, ooh, whoa, yeah, I'm going to let this happen. The old haunted handy, huh? Oh, no. And then, of course, the, you know, Amityville horror. Um, We actually talked about that uh, on one of our episodes. Um, I don't know that we ever did, did we? I don't think we've ever done a deep dive. Yeah, well, we did a half-assed dive. I don't know if it was deep. (laughs) So that might be something we actually go back and do a deep dive on. Um, But uh, so basically the, uh, the, the Fayo family bought it. And they had like four or five kids, and the eldest, DeFeo, woke up one night under. Um, so see, this is another case where like the devil made me do it because that was mm-hmm. that was you're right that you're was right. his thing. So you know, fuck this mm-hmm. article and the writers because they obviously don't know their history or their shit. So they need a real historian like me to <laughs> sit it straighter. Well, a problem with a lot of these articles is it is. It is somebody who's read the article on somebody else's website and tried to rewrite it. So it's not going to be copyright infringement because usually if you Google like Ed and Lorraine Warren Amityville case, it'll give you like four or five paragraphs and you go to the next uh, website and it's the same four or five, four or five, four or five. So a lot of these people try to creatively rewrite the stuff and get the facts way wrong. Well, anyways... So the the Feo kid woke up and was like under like a demonic possession. And he kept hearing voices voices says like kill him, kill him, kill him, and uh, kill him and mm-hmm. catch him, catch him and kill him. And um, so the and that was the odd thing that the the police could never figure out when um, they came into the murder scene. He had basically shot all of them at point uh, black uh, point blank range with a hunting rifle, but they were all face down. Mm-hmm. So it's like they were all sleeping on their on their um, on their stomachs or whatever. And it's like mm-hmm. none of them heard the other gunshots. So he went from room to room to room, killed you know the the sister went to the next room, killed the other sister went to the next room, killed the little brother, and then went into his parents shot the dad and the mom was asleep while all this happened and then shot her. So it's like whatever was going on, maybe it's like everybody was suffering from sleep paralysis, but somehow like, uh, you know, he killed them all while they were sleeping. Yeah. That's another weird thing too about Amityville is I don't know if you've ever heard a shotgun blast. I have not. Um, but I would like to think that if I heard a shotgun go off in my house, I would wake up. Instantly, or or not a shotgun, yeah. even a hunting rifle. Shit, yeah, a gun. I shot a squirrel one time out of a tree with a shotgun for my dad, and it was fucking loud as uh-huh. shit, and uh, it's got a lot yeah. of boom to it. So, yeah, so it's it's one of those deals. It's one of those um, pieces of that Amityville story that it doesn't quite add up because no matter where he went to his parents, then to the the brothers and sisters, or what, like. How do you not wake up when you you know with gunshots going off? So something they were also curious about is maybe he drugged the family somehow. Yeah. You know, at some point in the evening he drugged everybody. Um, it's it's really strange. And then there's other other uh, sources say that the the last one to die was his sister. Um, she was the second oldest, I believe, and she must have came home after it all happened and saw him in the hallway. And then she went ahead and went to bed, and then he offed yeah. her, you know, after he killed initially the first part of the family. But, yeah, it's weird. It's a weird tale, because doesn't he go into, like, the bar 
that that night and like walk in there and say someone killed my oh, family. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that's right. He did. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I forgot about that. So so then uh, we we could deep dive Amityville sometime, but I mean, I, I just feel like there's so many podcasts to have done that very well already like do we really gotta do our two cents no not really we can give our half ass cents worth on it like we just did so anyways (laughs) to make make a long story short uh, the lutz family and their three kids move in and uh so george lutz aka ryan reynolds um they move into the house and uh, the family reported you know antagonistic voices swarms of flies welts uh, family members levitating banging noises and unseen entities so they eventually call Ed and Lorraine Warren in. They bring in a local TV crew, and after snapping photos, one which included a boy with glowing eyes, the Warrens determined the land had a curse on it, and in 2013, during an interview, Lorraine Warren said that the Amityville house was one of the cases that haunts her the most. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. I'm trying to think if that was one of the cases they actually had like a camera crew come in and, and film for a news channel. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, that's that's a weird case because they supposedly had heard footsteps and weird noises in the house before the family was all murdered. And depending where you read, a lot of sources say that was actually reported way before the murders had happened. And so that's one of uh, the son's stories was, you know, the devil made me do it and I was being possessed by spirits and blah, blah, blah. But I don't, he changed his story like 20 plus times during that whole investigation. And I think he, currently he's somewhere in like, somewhere in like his 20, 20 plus year sentence. I think he's still serving time right now for that. And then uh, of course we got the haunting in in, uh, Connecticut where uh, the Mm -hmm. family has a boy who's dying of cancer they buy a home that used to be a funeral home. Um, that movie wasn't too bad either, I guess. I mean, the real life stories are kind of, kind of lame. But um, now, did the boy have cancer in real life? Yeah, yeah, he actually, oh, yeah, okay, he cool. did. And um, that was another one. So they brought out um, Ed and Lorraine for help. And uh, mm-hmm. so the Warrens attributed the hauntings to the ghosts of uh, those who were brought to the funeral home. So some of the people who were brought there after they were dead, like their spirits is attached to the home. According to the Warrens, the morticians partook in unsavory activities with the dead bodies. After a two-year uh, stay, the uh, Snydecker family moved out. Like the parents' uh, mm-hmm. storing, uh, story, the Snyder's haunting was immortalized in a film, so just go check out the film if you want more details. Um, let's see. Uh, that haunting included lights often flickered, dishes would shake, the smell of decaying flesh hovered in the air, and reportedly water would on occasion turn blood red. And Carmen and Al even alleged that demons had sodomized them during their two-year period there. So there were some butt-fucking demons. Uh, (laughs) Some butt-fucking demons, yeah. I want to say that uh, old Zathis, uh, John Zathis, was involved in that original investigation as well. I'm pretty sure. And then, uh, you know, the last one I found you'd ask me about, I'm like, no, the the article I read did not talk about that story. But... uh, that was number six in that article. So. <laughs> it's funny because I made sure not to find an article that said top six 
uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren stories, I made sure not to do it because I'm like, that's the one he grabbed. So I grabbed one that was like the top 20. <laughs> and I was like, oh, the werewolf one sounds cool because that's kind of off yeah. the beaten path. So uh, you can read that one or I'll read it, whichever you no, want to do. Fucking read it. I, I'm just like, I checked out at that point. I'm like, oh, Sean's got that one. I'm done. Bloop. Homework completed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm done. I'm done. It's not even <laughs> 10 o'clock. So, yeah, I was trying to find stories about Ed and Lorraine that were not just ghosts. I was really hoping for some alien stuff, but, you know, through about 30 minutes worth of Googling, I couldn't find anything. But I did find the werewolf story here. So, supposedly, there was a lot of talk that the Warrens had something to do with the uh, Enfield Poltergeist case, which is a really famous United Kingdom uh, haunting case. But that apparently is false, that that is not something they had anything to do with. But they were involved in another famous case in the UK known as the South End Werewolf case. So a guy named Bill Ramsley was this carpenter who lived in the South End, um, a place in Essex. And as a boy, he had a fascination supposedly with wolves. And his parents recalled that uh, even when he was little, he would growl a lot and run around the house growling and, you know, howling and stuff like that. And there was one instance where they went outside and found him when he was younger, growling, digging a hole in their garden, chewing on barbed wire and making strange, fierce, animalistic noises. So anyway, you fast forward and, and as an adult, one night when he was driving home from a pub in the car he looked in the rearview mirror because he felt a cold chill come over him. And when he saw his reflection in the rearview mirror, it looked like a wolf and not an actual human. So that scared him so bad, it triggered him. And then he lunged out and began to attack other people in the car with him. Another time around Christmas later that year, he was caught and tranquilized while prowling the halls of a hospital, howling and acting aggressive towards other people. Years later, in 1987, Ramsey fell into another one of his wolf-like spells when he attacked a group of police officers, forcing a dozen officers to have to work together to finally bring him down and sedate him. Medical science had no answer for what was happening to Bill Ramsey, and the Warrens came in to offer more supernatural explanations. As with many of the Warrens' investigations, it was determined that a demon was responsible for his werewolf-esque behaviors, the demonologist arranged for the troubled man to be taken to the U.S. so a priest could then perform an exorcism. So, yeah, interesting. I think we should become demonologists. <laughs> we talked about that, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it'd be a lot of fun. Well, let me get to my next story here because I've got one more I saved um, that I thought would be a lot of fun because... Uh, it's something that actually uh, hit me before I even decided we should do this little, you know, Lorraine blurb here. Um, I was online reading and I was at Weekend Weird and a title of an article caught my eye that says The Conjuring of Bigfoot, the forgotten case detailing the time that Lorraine Warren met Sasquatch in Tennessee. So let me get through the mumbo-jumbo here in the first part. Um, apparently this story is in their book called Ghost Hunters, Ed and Lorraine Warren, featuring Robert David Chase. And the story goes something like this. In quotes, it starts out with her saying, We had never paid much attention to the stories about Bigfoot. 
I wouldn't say that we dismissed them as fictitious, but Bigfoot didn't hold much interest for a psychic investigator. That changed one spring when we were lecturing in Tennessee, and a reporter from the Elk Valley Times contacted us about some hill people who kept insisting that something was threatening their children. And I don't know exactly what a hill person is, but I believe it would be just kind of like uh, hillbillies, yeah, right? you know, like rednecks up it, on the mountains, you know? Yeah, okay, yeah. that's what I thought. So, one foggy morning, just before embarking on a four-day lecture tour, the Warrens were heading into rural Tennessee to meet up with another group of frightened hill people claiming the same thing, that something large and hairy was dwelling in the local forest in the mountains, and it was trying to take their children. Just the day before they arrived, one woman claimed that a massive ape-like man crept up to her, grabbed her two-year-old by the hand, and attempted to run away with him, holding onto his arm. Now, Lorraine kind of shakes this off, doesn't quite believe the story. But having never seen poverty this raw, she says, a sense of guilt pushed her to entertain the witnesses. And she took their claims to heart. A little while later, she found herself following them into the woods. She's climbing over steep hills, descending down, you know, steep embankments into the gorges. And she's kind of on this, you know, impromptu Bigfoot search. And as a psychic ghost hunter, it wasn't exactly the kind of investigation she's used to. She's kind of ill-prepared for this. So hours later, she's completely exhausted. She's dirty. She's sweaty. She's got twigs in her hair. And she's been hiking, and now she's frustrated because she's like, this is just a giant waste of time. We could have been getting ready for our lecture tour, but instead, we're out here just gallivanting around with these hillbillies, so to speak. So in her moment of sheer frustration, she takes a break near a tree. And suddenly, her mind flashes with a mental image of a large creature. She described it as a picture or an image of a fusion of man and ape, with long arms, shaggy hair, and a face like that of a caveman, but eyes that gave off a light of intelligence. And in that moment, she realized she was looking at a Bigfoot. Because remember, she had that clairvoyance. She's kind of a medium. So as she focused on the being, she realized this creature was just 40 feet away from her, hiding in a thick brush patch, and he was in pain. Lorraine knew this because the Bigfoot was telepathically speaking to her through his mind. He was hurt, she says. His hairy, splayed foot was scabbed with still seeping blood. During his travels that day, somehow he must have injured his foot. He was afraid that this injury would somehow keep him returning to his secret cave, and the creature now projected great fear. She said Bigfoot missed his family, and he feared death or even being captured by humans who were seeking out his kind. He felt trapped and isolated and scared for his life. Lorraine began to give Lorraine began to give Sasquatch <laughs> if I could just talk. Lorraine began to give Sasquatch telepathic messages, explaining that he had terrified the settlement by attempting to kidnap one of their children. But Bigfoot disagreed, saying, no, he only responded by trying to make friends with the child. He wasn't trying to take anybody, he was just excited. He says youngsters don't have the prejudice that adults have. He could have felt, he felt like he could have perhaps explained himself to the child just as he was explaining himself to Lorraine. Eager to help, Lorraine began to shake with anxiety as she hushed her hiking group and needed complete concentration for her communication 
with Bigfoot. Soon she began to feel a maternal love and care to protect this beast. As she crept slower into the brush, projecting images of her bandaging Sasquatch foot, she spoke softly to the beast, hoping to calm Bigfoot just enough to approach him. I'm coming to you, she said mentally. I will help you and I will be your friend. But suddenly, the sound of a bullhorn rang out through the woods, breaking her concentration, thus sending Bigfoot fleeing further into the forest. A member of the hiking group had honked a horn as a joke, startling Lorraine, thus frightening the Sasquatch. Lorraine's mental images became frantic. The searing pain of the Bigfoot's injury was almost too much for her to take. He was running as fast as he could, limping, shaking with fear and exhaustion. Then the projections disappeared, and Bigfoot was gone. Lorraine spent the next 20 minutes following a trail of blood, both redder and more viscous than human blood, and she followed it all the way to the edge of a cliff. No sign of the creature could be found, and so the case file ends with an apparent Sasquatch suicide. Now, it doesn't quite end there, because in an intriguing addendum to the tale, demonologist Ed Warren chimes in to offer his own thoughts on Bigfoot, which are mighty interesting for a ghost hunter of that time period. Ed Warren suggests, It is my belief that Bigfoot is a tulpa, a mind projection. So is the Loch Ness Monster, and so are many other now-you-see-it-now-you-don't creatures who get to the press. In the most simplistic terms, Ed Warren is saying that Bigfoot is essentially a thought ghost. Decades before most ghost-centric paranormal researchers were catching onto the idea, he goes on to state that some could say UFOs and also aliens are also tulpas or creatures of black magic projection. And then he goes on to say, if you consider the theory that Aleister Crowley summoned the Loch Ness Monster, you can also believe that thought also projected and created Bigfoot. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that story. <clears throat> Shit, I didn't uh, realize that uh, old uh, Crowley uh, summoned the uh, Loch Ness Monster. I've never heard that. I, I never did either. It's something that should probably be read up on a little bit more. Yeah, we should probably, you know, not half-ass that and deep dive into that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was a very fun story. Uh, you know, big shout out to Weekend Weird for that article. Very well written, very well researched. And I want to try to find a copy of that book now, yeah. Ghost Hunters. Um, I went on to Amazon and I found some old used copies for uh, 28 bucks that were hardbacks. But um, I also found some paperbacks in new condition that were like 11 bucks. Yeah. I just don't know if they're reprints of the old book or there's something new. So she uh, so she never physically saw Bigfoot, right? She just uh, mentally communicated with it. Um, that's what I think. It didn't say in that article, you know, that she saw it. But there could be more to it in that book, too, which is kind of why I want to get that book. Yeah. I also really want to read more. Um, there's an article here on Google that says, Cursed Loch Ness Home of Occultist Aleister Crowley. Did Aleister Crowley accidentally summon the Loch Ness Monster? 
Well, shit. Left turn, folks. Wasn't uh, didn't nope that article's too long for me to read. <laughs> yeah, did uh, didn't Johnny Depp buy Alistair Crowley's house? Like somebody famous bought that house and lived there for a time. Um, I it might have been uh, it might have been Depp. I don't know. I never uh, never heard about that too much. But he seems like the type of person that would do that. So just buy a fucking cult leader's house. Yeah. Well, maybe. Bolskine House in the south side of Loch Ness was said to have been the home of occultist leader Aleister Crowley, Led Zeppelin's guitarist and producer Jimmy Page, among others. Uh, it Jimmy Page, a, yeah. yeah. It suffered a significant fire in December 2015. That actually uh, makes sense now because um, on Led Zeppelin 4... Mm-hmm. Or yeah, it was Led Zeppelin for the uh, album cover with the old man and the branches. Um, on the mm-hmm. back of that, there's a bunch of occult symbols, and one of them is Zozo, uh, the demon. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's tons of uh, conspiracy theories about um, Led Zeppelin and Aleister Crowley, and how like you know they made they made a pact with the devil and all this other crap, dude. So it's. It's interesting. I've read a lot of uh, articles about it, listened to a lot of podcasts about it. We've never got into it. Fuck, but... let's get into it. Led Zeppelin's one of my favorite rock and roll bands of all time. Well, that's good for you. You know what? Fuck you and your <laughs> Dave uh, Matthews, all right? <laughs> <laughs> no, we could do it. I wouldn't mind reading into it, man. You know, we did the uh, did the stuff about the Beatles a long ass time ago, which I would love to go back and redo sometime. <laughs> 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 that was back in our uh, early years. Yeah. But yeah, there's just some fun stuff about Ed and Lorraine. Um, I wouldn't mind getting back and doing a deeper dive on their stuff after I got a hold of that book, maybe. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like Amityville has been just dissected and regurgitated so many times. I never really wanted to get into that. More than we did tonight, really. I think my my problem with a lot of the, the Ed and Lorraine Warren stuff is like most of it, I've seen the movies first. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh my god! Like, let me go research that. And then because it's been over Hollywoodized, that mm-hmm. the real stories are actually kind of boring. And I'm just like, meh. And then I just don't finish reading it because I'm like, that's that was nowhere near what I saw on film. Like, that's... <laughs> right, kind of a letdown. Sometimes. Yeah, it's a big letdown. Yeah, I hear that. Well, buddy, I think we can call it there. I'll uh, I'll do a quick edit. This one might be a little more rough than usual, but uh, I want to get it pressed, and that way you guys can have it to listen to on Wednesday. And then um, Thursday night, we are recording part two of The Thieves in the Night with Steven. So we'll get back at that, I, I swear, is it? And then you guys will have that next week. So Yeah. Hell yeah. All right, man. Well, what do you want to plug, buddy? Well, as always, if you need a beard, want a beard, if you want to grow a beard that will make a telepathic Bigfoot jealous, check out (laughs) BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off of your purchase. Check out scents like Dundee Cedar, Fresh, Classic, and my all-time favorite, Bay Rum. Damn, you just took my fucking job, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Our little Preston's grown up. Yeah. It's only taken about 60-some episodes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah. Check out our buddy Mark's solo cast, 
pixelated sausage, watch his gaming videos when he goes on a crusade to attack the backlog. Check out what's my favorite uh, race car podcast? Sports Cars Unleashed. Mm-hmm. Get in on that. And then also check out Fear and Fame over in Colorado. Got some pretty great true crime stuff coming from those ladies. So uh yeah, check out Gunslinger Soap. Get you some soap smell better than you ever imagined. Mm-hmm. And uh, I might get I'm gonna get a chance to hopefully catch up with Gunslinger. Uh, in July, I think it is, Shayla surprised me with uh, Sunday tickets to Crypticon there. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to see if I can't get my uh, get a couple things autographed. They're going to have a few people up there doing some autographs. And I think it's stupid to have to pay for uh, autographs from people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I would really, really love to get my... Uh, to get my Halloween Blu-ray autographed by uh, what's his name? I don't know. If, I don't know if uh, Nick Castle's going to be there, but one of the folks who played the shape is going to be there, and also um, a couple other people are going to be there anyway. Yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't got to go into it, but yeah, so I'm excited about that. That'll be fun. Cool. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get out of here. Thanks for listening, guys. I know it's kind of short and sweet, but uh, so am I. Yeah. all right get you guys next time peace the cast at pixelated paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode pixelated paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical the strange the unknown tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway if you'd like to share your own listener story we would love to hear it email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.